0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. The Climate Farmers Community is the place to be if you're working towards regenerating your farmland and business and want to learn from other farmers who are on a similar journey. Now, Europe is a very diverse continent with significant differences in biomes, landscapes, climates, cultures, languages, and contexts. So rather than looking further abroad for solutions, connect with others who found solutions to the challenges that are unique to us here. We have a central community chat on WhatsApp where you can ask questions, share your own observations, and simply chat with others who don't think you're crazy. We also organize regular skill exchange calls where experienced farmers share their knowledge and answer listener questions. Increasingly, we're even bringing the community offline by organizing gatherings at farms all around Europe. So if you're actively farming anywhere in Europe, you can join for free today through the website at climatefarmers.org under the For Farmers tab, and click on Join the Community. And there's also a direct link through the show notes for this episode. I look forward to seeing you there. Hello, hello everybody. Now today we're gonna be continuing with the second part of our deep dive into drought. Along with my good friend Nick Steiner and I, we are going to move now from defining drought and its myriad of causes and factors that make it worse, to a wide range of solutions and opportunities that are available to people who are living in different environments and with different access to land and space. Now, you may not be surprised to hear that we ended up running really long on this, and so I split the episode into two parts. In this session, we cover mostly the order of consideration for a retrofit of a home or even a landscape design that is geared towards water harvesting and rehydration or in the case of a building, more efficient and effective water use. Then we look at the options available to people in small living spaces, like apartments and condos in urban and peri-urban areas. We also start to explore the next size up, which would be small to medium-sized homes with access to anything from a small garden to a couple acres of land. Now the great thing about looking at things in this order is that pretty much all of the options available to small-scale living and land access are also available as you size up. I also think that it's important to explain that there's no reason you need to own or have access to large amounts of land in order to have a meaningful effect and influence on the water catchment in your local area, or often even more importantly, assist in the shifting of the culture of water use and abuse that is baked into many of the modern societies that we participate in, towards one of reverence and respect for water and the life that it enables. Now, it's impossible that Nick and I mention and explore all of the options at the various scales of living that we cover in these next two episodes, so please reach out to us if you think that there are other possibilities we should be aware of or mention in future talks. We're always excited to expand our own understanding and have a better grasp of the new and emerging knowledge for working with water. So with that out of the way, let's go to me and Nick. It was a really great session last time. We really got into well first of all updating people about the different projects that we've got and how this relates to the current state of drought that both of our living areas are in you on the island of tenerife me in the mountains of Catalonia, and well this is ongoing especially because we're recording this one day after we recorded the last one (laughs) uh yeah the drought conditions have not changed one day to another but Luckily, we're going to be turning the lens around a little bit from just, I guess, articulating the issues that we're having, the statistics around it, and why this is such an issue, to actually what is possible, where there's hope in all of this, and how we can start to reverse the trends of drought. I know that this is something that you're very passionate about and that you've researched a lot. It's a big part of your work. And so why don't you start us off with you know, first of all, where you see some of the biggest potential here before we start to break it down into the different scales and levels of appropriate action.
1: Absolutely. i happy to do so. Yeah, I totally missed you. It's been like 12 hours since we talked. <laughs> um, yeah. So those of you who know who know us and, and uh, me in this case know that water is definitely front and center for everything. Um, and it's particularly clear here at the property because it's fully off grid, Uh, We only get 280 millimeters, around 11 inches of rain. So that's really hardly anything. And normally none of that comes between May and September. And I only have one big water tank at the property. um, And so this is basically the lifeline for everything. And that's the moment when you really learn, okay, how am I going to use this resource? It's definitely limited. Um, If it ever runs out, I'm in deep trouble and trucking in new water is going to be insanely expensive. Uh, And since the road is in really bad conditions, not even sure if it's possible. And that's kind of the moment when you realize there is no tap that you can just turn on whenever you want to and there's unlimited water. And this is the situation that some people face. Well, if we look globally, many people face this situation. Um, For us in the West, luckily not that many face that situation. But it's something that it's really good to be prepared for. Like, don't expect the tap to always be there. Don't expect water to be almost free, uh, as it is in most places at the moment. And what I've realized here is that just the thought of having unlimited um, free or at least very cheap water would change everything. Like, if you have very bad soil conditions, uh, you can just grow the fertility. If, I'm just thinking here every day, I'm, I would plant so much more if I had water, I would, I would just plant all the fertility I want, I would plant all the fruit, all the everything I want, because I would know I can just give it as much water as it needs, um, and this is the kind of point we can get to. If we have enough water, we can improve any situation, any soil, anything, but you can have the perfect farm, the perfect setup, everything can be ideal, but if you run out of water, those plants are going to die eventually. And that's a reality that more and more are facing. And that's a reality that is really good to be prepared for. Um, and yeah, what what's the worst that could happen? Like Worst case, you just end up with having free water and a great growing garden. Like, well, there's absolutely no downside to working better with water. Um, and looking at this kind of cascade that I'm seeing more, it's like water is at the very top. And when you get your water right, everything else can follow. And this is often also expressed in the scale of permanence Uh, that's a term that was used for it and that is often used in these um, regenerative agriculture um, realms and maybe for those of you who don't know what it is uh, oliver can you give a a bit of an explanation of, of scale of permanence and what that actually means
0: yeah the scale of permanence is referred to a lot especially in the realms of permaculture design because Bill Mollison and David Holmgren were largely inspired by another guy in Australia back in the 1950s. And his his name was P. A. Yeomans. He was an engineer and a farmer and came up with this system that he called the scale of permanence that organized the different elements on a farm as to how much energy it requires to alter or change them in any way. And then of course, how long it would actually take for them to change on their own. And let's see if I remember these off the top of my head. It starts with climate, because really we don't have the ability, not on an individual level, to change the climate. I mean, there's plenty of evidence to say that we have changed the climate, but this is over longer periods of time, tons of energy, lots of people doing this all over the world. You're not going to change your own climate. You're not going to really influence it at all. And so at this stage of the scale of permanence, rather than trying to strategize about how to manipulate it, we're learning as much as possible so that we can later adapt the system to the condition, otherwise unfeasible. Now as you move down this scale, it becomes a lot less energy intensive and takes much less time in order to influence these elements. So the second one is landform. Landform is quite permanent. It takes a long time to change on its own. We're talking about wind or water erosion primarily, this can take eons. And we can actually start to influence at, a, at this stage, but we need very large machinery and a ton of energy to do so. So that's landform. The third one is water. And the reason why it's so high up on this scale of permanence is though we can manipulate it more and sometimes through shaping of land, We ultimately don't have control over things like rainfall, like we talked about in the last episode and the the effects of drought. That's out of our hands. And so if we can start to store water on the landscape, either underground or in overground water bodies, this is much like you were just saying, too the linchpin about the capacity for life that we can uh, invite into a space right everything is dependent on water all forms of life on this planet anyway, are dependent on water and the more water we have access to within you know reasonable amounts we're not talking about like trying to build an ocean on your farm but integrating it into the biotic systems is going to greatly improve the capacity for life on that space. And then from there you go into ecosystems and the, the old way was, was talked about as forestry. And so I'm, I'm gonna mix up the terms a little bit here because I didn't study so much originally from PA Yeomans. I actually went for, what was it for? Access is for, you're right. This is why I'm going off of uh, top of my head. Right after water, we get to access. And access is also closely related to the ones above it. You'll see this all throughout the scale of permanence. Access is how you get in and out of certain parts of the landscape. And if you can coordinate this with the way that you have shaped the land and the way you are routing water throughout the space, you can do so in a conducive way so that your access uh, routes like, like paths or roads last longer. And can actually act as features that move water to and from where you want it to be and harvest it or store it on the landscape in convenient ways. Now, if these things are in conflict, this is where you get water washing out roads. This is where you get water sitting on access paths and getting them all muddy and starting to degrade the ability to move around and transfer energy around there. And I'll go through the other ones more quickly because we're not going to focus on them quite as much, but just like all the rest of them, they are very much influenced by those above. And so the reason why we look at the scale of permanence in this order is that if you make these considerations on the higher end before moving down to the lower end, you are much less likely to have your elements your considerations and the design of your farm conflict with major forms of natural resources that you want to optimize so after access we've got ecosystems uh, previously referred to as forestry since this was mostly looking at perennial ecosystems and woody plants they tend to outlast buildings at least traditionally not in this part of the world in spain the but buildings have really outlasted a lot of things. And then fencing or subdivisions, basically semi permeable barriers that allow certain organisms and life forms to get to different areas or not and how we move them about in a space. And then soils is actually the lowest on here. And to me, there's an odd amount of focus and priority on on soils in in regenerative agriculture because they are relatively easy to change and manipulate in a short period of time and with little energy compared to the other elements that I just said ahead of time. And there's since been an expansion. Like I said, the, the way that I've learned most of the details about this scale of permanence is through the Regrarians platform, Darren Doherty, and his way of teaching it. And they've expanded to economy as number nine and energy as 10, both of which are very transient and very maybe not necessarily easy to manipulate on a large scale but when we're talking at a farm scale they come and go quickly and so yeah that's kind of where they fall in that scale. So the main point of illustrating that was just to show how high up on the scale of permanence water is and the reason why it's one of our first considerations when making a design for a landscape whether or not the outcomes that we're looking for are directly related to production or not, because of just how ubiquitously important water is for any kind of ecological project. So with that explanation out of the way, let's talk about the order in which, and some of the organization in which we're talking about these interventions and actions, and why we consider them in this order. So we start with, looking at any issue with hydrology on a space. And we're gonna start really small and then move up to larger landscapes and regions. But first we wanna look at removing points of damage or points of drainage. Because if, kind of think about it like hospital triage. If somebody is got a massive bleeding wound, you're not gonna check their temperature first, right? Like you have to stop the bleeding before you can work with things at, at a, a higher level of, of need or want. And so if your landscape is draining, if your, let's say, hypothetically, your water tank in Tenerife has a major leak in it and you can't find it and you're not getting any more rain, <laughs> well, that's probably where you want to fix things first. Maybe you can give me an example, Nick, about how this has played out in your own system.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, th- that's the, the main thing, like leakage is such an important point if you have unlimited water it doesn't really matter if a pipe is leaking and dripping and you're losing water but when that's your main limiting resource like even a tiny drip if it's constant enough can really drain tanks quickly and so yeah that's that's something i'm i'm always cautious about here like with my with my small pressure tank on the terrace that i'm filling up with the solar pump occasionally um usually it lasts a few weeks uh in the past it had only lasted around a week, which is weird. So yeah, I'm I'm playing leak detective and trying to find where where it's leaking. Sometimes it can just be one little connection that's not perfectly tight. <clears throat> but over time that will absolutely drain tanks. Um and it's also one of the things where I would highly recommend people to build in redundancy. So my main tank, the valve, is always closed just for a few minutes when I'm pumping into the smaller tank, just to make sure that if there's a leak, it's not the whole tank that's, that's leaving, but just 1,000 or 2,000 liters. And yeah, that's that's where we need to start. So where is water leaking from, from tanks? That's a crucial thing to start, but also points of drainage, like almost all of them are designed in a way to get water away as quickly as possible. Rain gutters go down the drain, everything goes down the drain and that can be a very valuable resource. So why would you not use that free resource that you're draining off before you start capturing more? And that's why it's so crucial um, to start there. And, and it's something we, we will go into a little bit later when we talk about gray water systems. It's one of the quickest ways how you can have more water by using it twice. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not just about removing damage and, and also the, the drainage. Um, we can also go a little bit further. But yeah, this is just from from my side. So maybe on your side, what do you observe in that area?
0: Well, so you talked a lot about where drainage and loss of water from a system in an engineered environment can be, right? So leaks in your tanks and such. But what do these look like on a landscape, right? Um, What does drainage or points of loss look like when you actually go out into the environment? Because it can be seen in a few different ways.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in the landscape, we often see... Um, what is called erosion gullies. So you you always see them in any kind of environment. There's always this one spot or these multiple spots where when it rains, water accumulates. It's the lowest spot. It's the basically the path of least resistance for water. And that's where it will start cutting into the landscape. And we always see them. We can see them in, in a tiny scale in a garden. We can also see them in huge scale on farms. Uh, it's also something uh, when we visited... Uh, farmers recently in Portugal, where we saw some of these erosion gullies, uh, I think three, four meters deep. They were gigantic. And so that's as you described earlier, that's a giant wound. Uh, and if you can fix that, all that water that leads through those um, gullies, if you can make that available throughout the dry season, that plays a gigantic role. and it's it's one of the main things where you can where you can start, like plug the leaks before you build new systems to capture more. Because if you just capture it and then it leaks again, well, what good does that do?
0: Yeah, erosion is definitely the easiest to see of the points of drainage on a landscape that I've observed. In modern times, there are some other hidden ones, especially on farms that I like to look for. There is a product called Drainage Tile that you can occasionally find now outside of the United States and Canada, where I know that's been in used a lot more regularly than in other parts of the world. And the it, the name is deceptive because it's not tile. Uh, what it is is actually drainage tubes that are embedded in the ground, usually in, in pasture or row cropping areas. And this is because so much of the arable, high value farmland on that continent was reclaimed from wetlands. And as you can imagine, most wetlands accumulate a lot of moisture. They're they're like uh, full sponges, right? They're they're constantly at capacity and they work as filters. So there's a high level of moisture. They're oftentimes at or even slightly below the water level or the water table level of that area. And so in order to make them productive for, let's say grains that don't require being entirely submerged in water, which I mean, let's face it, they could have grown rice or something. But anyway, so (laughs) they embedded a huge network of tubes that are perforated. And so when the water level or water table starts to rise in that area, these tubes kick it off to a lower point and prevent the water level from getting up and saturating or soaking the roots of the plants, which can cause them to die. Over time, what this has done is completely drain the landscape underneath the ground. And yeah, so you need to know if there is drainage tile in the landscape that you're working with, If you're working with a large farm, there's a chance it's not very common otherwise, but it's very often hidden. So if you don't know what you're looking for and you're having water issues, that could be something to look into. And I guess the last one that I would mention there is compaction or capping of soil. So it's not necessarily a drain in in itself, but if water is unable to get into the soil in any way, it's running off the surface. It's reaching a saturation point. Sometimes, you know, if it's hard enough, that saturation point is basically the point of contact and you're just losing your water right from from the beginning, even if you don't see particular drainage gullies. And honestly, and this this is common all throughout the rest of the world, whether you're on a farm or not, where you often see the biggest drains are in roads and access ways. You know, I was talking about this at the scale of permanence before, Access comes right after water. But oftentimes I am looking at a project designing these two things in cohesion. Because if you are designing access ways that go across contour, dig into the ground, essentially you've just put a giant gash into the landscape and channeled all of the water from uphill of that area to the fastest route down and made it impossible for it to infiltrate into the landscape in any way. This is endemic all across the world. Like bad road design, bad access design is easy to see all over the place. And so identifying where you are losing water from, it could be something as small as a hiking trail, but it could be something as large as a highway. And all of these are designed to kick water off of them uh, by necessity, right? It's really hard to maintain an access way if it's holding water. And so looking at the access ways that are near or on your land and how water is interacting with them and where that water is being channeled to can often be one of the biggest sources of loss that first needs to be rectified before you can move to the next stage. So let's talk about that next stage. Nick, let's talk about conservation and why we look at this after stopping the bleeding in our triage of a landscape.
1: Um, Yeah, so Basically, once you prevent water from leaving unnecessarily, at how much water are we using? Um, and that can be quite surprising, like how much water we use that we don't necessarily need to use. Um, and it's also like once you start paying attention to it, it's uh, it's quite interesting. And I think one of the best examples is uh, toilet flush. So like the in a normal house, Like the amount of fresh water we use to just wash away uh, nutrients in the form of pee is is quite astonishing. Um, So what we do here, like just in the garden with with our different trees, um, so we try to rotate every day. So we just irrigate each tree in a a rotational pattern. so that's, that's what we try to do here. So to, to use the um, the flush as little as possible. Um, some people definitely prefer uh, using a toilet um, with a flush. So it's perfectly fine. It's perfectly understandable. Um, but then what you can also do, sometimes you can reduce the amount of water that is used in your flush. So what you can do is some sometimes the, there's a valve in there. You can adjust it so that it fills a little bit less Uh, if you don't have that possibility what you can also do is just put something into the reservoir of the flush to just have less space so the easiest i found is fill a water bottle water fill it all the way put it in there and then every flush takes less water so that's something um also when you're thinking about um, shower like how much how much water you're using there how you're washing your dishes how are you using that water uh, is constantly running so so there's all these little things that uh depends a bit on on where you live and what your water situation is. Um, I've also heard in some cities two people basically used too little water and then they had problems with flushing the pipes uh because there wasn't enough water flow anymore. So there can be the the other opposite, but I guess with water shortages and drought happening everywhere, I guess uh reducing water usage is a good thing. um Also, in the garden, irrigation is one of the biggest things. Um, it always surprises me like many times you see around noon the afternoon the sun is blazing and people are irrigating their crops and then basically just through evaporation you might as well just throw that water straight into the drain Um, so just by irrigating early in the morning or early at night and not when the sun is blazing your plants will be happier and your your water consumption as well so there's so many little things and I mean, it's it's impossible to go into all of them, but the mindset is the one thing that that I would say people should get into. So every time you're interacting with water, think like, hey, is this necessary? Like, do I need to use this water at the moment? Is there maybe a way to use it differently? And also, is there a way to use this water? Maybe, maybe twice, but that's what we would get into uh, with gray water. And yeah, the... the less water you have the more cautious you will start being uh, when it comes to reservation but how, how do you experience that
0: well so one of the things that i have found really useful especially like in a home setting is to moderate the pressure that comes out of your your pipes and i guess it depends on how much pressure you're already dealing with but i've lived in apartment buildings where the pressure is just absurd. Like you lightly turn on a tap and there's just this deluge coming out. There's no reason for that. And it's very easy to add a pressure regulator valve into a plumbing system. If you don't feel comfortable doing that, a plumber will do it for you really easily. And yeah, think about for most of the points of use for water, how much pressure you actually need to accomplish that goal. Let's say washing your hands. You're not like the part that's cleaning your hands is not the pressure of the water. You just need a little bit of water, basically like lubricant and soap uh, as a solution to get off any grime. You don't need pressure. Uh, Same with like, you know, water for brushing your teeth. Okay, shower. You probably want some pressure there, but there are different heads and fixtures that you can put on that are low flow that still maintain a decent amount of pressure, but with a fraction of the water actually coming out, mostly by just, you know, pressurizing small little jets so that uh, you don't you don't get a huge unnecessary amount of water in the same amount of time. And this is actually in contrast to some of oddly enough, these things kind of go in fads. And the rainhead showers are really popular right now. These big wide ones that just drop water down on you. Those consume an absurd amount of water that is unnecessary. Yeah, they're kind of comfortable, but if water scarcity is something that you care about or even just you know smart use of it a more conservative water fixture would be a good use there and then the other one too is how much of what you're using water for requires it to be potable Uh, the the standards for drinking water are very expensive to maintain for municipal systems. And I'm assuming most people here are on municipal systems. It's a rare person like you, Nick, who catches, <laughs> catches all their rainwater. Although more people should be doing that. And there's ways of integrating that within municipal water supplies too. But assuming that most people are on municipal water, it's a huge amount of energy, filtration, infrastructure that's required to create all of the water in our systems to be potable standards. And whether or not you consider those potable standards from where you're getting your water from good enough for you to drink or you could go and buy bottled water for consumption. I am really an advocate of having multiple systems where the quality of water is adequate for what you're using it for. Like there's no reason we should be purifying water to the point of drinking and then using it to flush our toilets. That's a huge waste of resources and energy. And so if you have the option to, like you said, reuse some water, which we'll go into more detail in gray water systems and points of reuse, those are really good applications for it, right? You can hold on to the water after a shower in a bathtub and scoop it into the flushing mechanism of your toilet, right? There's no reason why it needs to be that clean. So those are kind of the ones on on conservation that I think are important that may be out of some people's hands, but in a larger advocacy sense, is something that we could talk about in retrofitting a lot of the infrastructure for municipalities in this way, if we're trying to save energy and water at the same time. All right, so that's conservation. Now let's go into the fun stuff, which is adding or being able to increase the capacity and storage for hydration in your landscape or in your home. What are some of the main options there that you see?
1: Um, I think one of the Big things when when looking at home So let us start at the point of of access that definitely everyone has. So if you are in an apartment, maybe you don't have access to your own own garden, your your own land. Um, Very likely you do have some kind of uh, some kind of plants there, some kind of um, yeah flower pots, all these kind of things. So that's a step where you can really start. It's like okay, how are you how are using water for your plants? So there, you can really start with with different designs of of watering them. So I'm I'm a big fan of self watering pots uh, for small apartments. So there, they this is
0: your forte. Just... Wait, so go on because you've really experimented around with this. You've actually got a whole landscape on self watering pots out in your garden there. But let's start from the smaller scale. How does that look for house plants inside of a home?
1: Yeah. So so for house plants. And the basic idea of this pot design and, um, and and how this works is that each pot and each plant gets water from below so that's how it how it also works in nature quite a lot is that the roots need to get to that water um, and so if water is coming from below the roots get trained to grow down um, and that's one of the issues how we can how we can really reduce also consumption because we tend to water from the top, so the top layers get wet, but if the sun is shining, those also dry out easier and you only get some surface surface layer roots. And if the water always comes from the bottom, then the plants get trained to grow better roots. And also the biggest thing that I'm seeing is you have almost no evaporation because you don't have water on the surface. It's always protected by at least a few centimeters of soil and then another mulch layer that's, that's on top. And so you would think like, yeah, but doesn't it lead to root rot? Um, and normally it would if you would just uh, basically dump the plants in, in normal pots but how these work is that you create a water reservoir at the bottom but then the actual soil starts a little bit above that and I always make sure that there's an outflow kind of below the soil layer starts so you can imagine this kind of as a as a wick that you have in a lamp you know it's just submerged in water so the like an oil lamp I think that's the The easiest example to to understand where you just have the wick that's inside the oil and it it starts burning. And that's how these pots work as well. So just a small portion of the soil is actually touching the water at the bottom of them. um, And then the the soil through capillary action just pulls up the water and then eventually the roots grow into it. And that system is great because it's much less watering. Uh, You can leave these pots alone for quite some time. And now the way I'm I'm expanding it is I'm connecting all my pots with float valves and just making it a bit more sophisticated so that I really don't have to do anything anymore. But just switch automatic
0: whenever it gets to a lower level.
1: Exactly. It's basically the same that you have in a toilet flush where it always refills to a certain level. So that's what I build for my pots. Um, and that way I don't really need to do anything anymore. And just by switching pots to that, you can already reduce watering. And that same concept can be applied if you don't have access. To a garden but i mean almost everyone has at least one plant at home um probably everyone had at least one plant die due to either not watering it enough or drowning it uh, and also with these pots you can get rid of that problem so that's why why i love it and it's something that really everyone can do if you have at least a tiny bit of light in your in your room
0: yeah and so to recap real quickly we started talking about removing damage and points of drainage in whatever system you're designing for, then aiming for conservation, and only after doing those things, looking at your capacity for capture and addition. The reason why we go through those steps in that order is that because if you start to try and size a system to capture a certain amount of water before you get rid of where you're losing it from and reduce to hopefully the bare minimum what you actually need, Chances are you're either going to completely over design a system, make it unnecessarily large, which can be very expensive or sometimes completely unfeasible with the amount of, let's say, uh, roof space that you have to harvest rainwater or the landscape and its capturability. And so first, by removing that that drainage or that point of loss and then reducing what it is that you actually require, chances are what you're going to need to harvest or add to your system is going to be significantly diminished. And then you could potentially go above and beyond and get into this point of enjoying a very hydrated, lush landscape like Nick is dreaming of (laughs) somewhere down the line. And so, yeah, so thinking about it in this order is key because it will definitely save you money. It will definitely keep you within the limits of what your landscape or your house is capable of doing. And yeah. What we're gonna do now is we're going to go through options at various scales of properties that you may have access to. We already talked about indoor spaces for apartments or condos. And then we're gonna move all the way up to large farms, you know, big tracts of land and maybe even regional scale. We'll go all the way up to there. And we're gonna try and cover a couple of options in each of these categories that we already mentioned to hopefully give you some ideas and expand what you might think is possible at these different uh, levels of design so let's see we've already talked about self-watering plants inside the house there are very limited options of what you can do with a water system if you don't own the building if you you know even if you have a condo you're not really dealing with the infrastructure inside of the larger building chances are you don't have any control over that conservation within your use is what's going to be available to you but this is where I really like to introduce the option of working within community. You've got a lot of people around. If I mean, at least the people in your building, that's a that's a, probably larger than the town that I live in as, as far as population. So collaboration and looking at the larger ecology around you, even if in your downtown space, most areas have parks, most areas have little green belts and looking at the options that you have there to create small Uh, water retention landscapes to add more diversity of plants or plant something that's appropriate to the amount of water that it's getting or the drought conditions that you may face. I have had some wonderful projects submitted through the design programs that I taught through Gaia Education in the past of people who looked at you know, small regional parks where they would go and walk their dog or these little green belts along the side of roadways that had been abandoned and neglected. I've even seen a really cool design for, you know, that strip of land that they always keep free of vegetation just under power lines because they're always worried that trees are going to grow up and, and damage the lines. Well, okay, you can't grow big trees there, but what can you do with lower shrubs and actually taking care of that space because it's otherwise oftentimes very much off contour and a huge point of drainage and erosion in those landscapes. So get creative. Look around you. What areas could be improved? What could benefit from an ecological design mindset and the perspective of trying to make the most of these little belts of ecology that are integrated within the engineering system? Uh, What else? Do you have any other ideas for that scale of, of residence, Nick?
1: yeah absolutely i mean if you if you don't own the land um but we are all surrounded by these small parts like you often also see it um where you have one tree like one little sad tree growing uh in a bunch of of naked soil or you have a bit of grass like just on the side of the road um and while we might not be able to reshape them uh even though that is also an option where you can get together with your community to slightly Shape there. One thing that you can always do is uh, accidentally drop some seeds in there to bring some, bring some diversity into that, Um, you know, like- gardening. Exactly. You know, like no one can stop you from having some seeds in your pocket. And then for some reason, you know, there was a hole in your pocket and all those seeds dropped into that space and suddenly started growing. Like those accidents happen. uh, (laughs) That's perfectly fine.
0: They happen a lot with you, Nick. (laughs) I feel like you're being <laughs> reckless.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe I need to fix my pants to, to not drop <laughs> seeds all the time. But yeah, it's definitely something anyone can do anywhere. And yeah, especially if you go for like some some native pollinator-friendly plants and some hardy perennials that can just bring bring the vegetation back. No one's going to complain.
0: I've actually seen some really beautiful examples of this. There was an area of Seattle that I was living in and it was fairly industrial not a very pretty area of the city there were these small little squares in between the street itself and the sidewalk of you know mostly dead grass and there was a row of about three of them while i was walking at one point and they had strawberries and basil and sage and all these other things planted and then i was like what is this doing here they even had little um uh carteles like um little tickets to to give you the name of the plant for people who didn't know Like someone clearly put a little love into that space. It totally made my day when I saw it. Uh, I didn't eat the food because it was right next to the road. But still, like it's beautiful. And it was also a demonstration that this kind of stuff could grow in an environment like that. And I would imagine some people got the inspiration like, oh, well, if it can grow there, man, I bet I could get this to grow in even more favorable conditions. So stuff like this has an impact, you know, and it's also fun. It's really enriching to do something to do with your friends. And it makes a difference in, in your landscape.
1: Maybe, maybe at this point, it's it's also really interesting to point out how even policy can change uh, around those things. So one really good example is Brad Lancaster in, in Tucson. So what he did in his landscape, he observed that on roads, lots of water just washes away and it's, it's a desert-like environment. I think they get the same amount of rainfall as we get here, so hardly anything. But when it comes, there's a lot of it. And it was just washing away in the streets. So in his community, what he did, he just... Uh, started cutting the the what's it called I think the curb on the on the side yeah, of the road a little keeps, lip
0: of concrete that yeah
1: exactly and from there he just dug basically little basins next to the road where the vegetation was growing and he just made them a little bit lower than the road so water that was flowing on the road then could flow into those where it would stay and once they were full it would go back onto the road continue flowing and they started planting these um, and suddenly they transformed a completely dry and dead landscape into a real oasis. And when I'm talking about policy here is, well, at the beginning, they did that very much illegally. Um, but at some point, people realized, oh, wait, why is your street completely green? Why do you not have as many problems with flooding as other areas? Like, Why is everything here amazing and you're not using as much municipal water? And then basically he started explaining his concepts, and now this is actually proposed by the city. So when new roads it's are built
0: for new developments, yeah,
1: exactly. They're now doing it. So yeah. that's why you but know sometimes in a lot of
0: other places too, not just in the desert southwest. I've seen, I've actually seen some of these things in in New Jersey, and I can't remember where else. But the idea is not only does it help to rehydrate the landscape, mm-hmm. but it takes a huge load off of the flood surges that usually collect in drains and can cause all kinds of problems for the infrastructure of a city. So there's a lot of reasons to advocate for this beyond growing more greenery. And I think that's the angle that he eventually won over the town council with and not only got this idea embraced, but then now, like I said, uh, required for new developments.
1: Exactly. So, you know, sometimes happy little accidents uh, can turn to policy changes. So, yeah, see what you feel comfortable with and, and what doesn't cause uh, any real danger.
0: Yeah. And, you know, you have access to so many more people in an urban environment like that. See who else is passionate about these things or who you can, you know, inspire and make passionate about these things around you. Because as you start to build up allies, this is really how, you know, bigger change, systemic change starts. And as you grow your community and your advocacy, you can start to take it to a policy level or even just start to increase the scale of projects that you do within your neighborhood and get more people involved. And I mean, only good things can come out of this even beyond what you're doing for the landscape, getting to know your neighbors, building resiliency in those uh, connections, disaster preparedness. So much of this can come out of, you know, just building community around positive ideas. All right, so that's urban areas and apartments. And now let's go one step up to small properties. So this is either small houses with a little bit of green space, a small garden, probably something of a 10th of an acre or a couple, maybe one to 2,000 square meters in in metric. I'm not sure what that is in Celsius, but uh, you can make the conversion. So (laughs) at this small scale of residency, (laughs) <laughs> uh, you start to get more options, right? So, you do have more control over what you do with the water that falls on your space. You can work within the plumbing of your house. You can work with the soil and what you plant in that small area. Give me some ideas because this is somewhere where you really excel and have worked a lot, Nick. Where do you start?
1: Um, yeah, I would always start with what are the kind of easiest places where you can where you can capture rain uh and almost every time that that's your roof um so very likely you have a roof uh, if you live somewhere well if you don't that's maybe a good place to start but when you have a roof roof, well i have part (laughs) of a roof (laughs) the other is still a tarp
0: mentioning houses without roofs
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Wait, wait, well, no, there's a story behind detail. this.
0: Let's, let's let's talk about <laughs> this real quick for the one person in the world. Well, not that's not fair. There's some other people who don't live with roofs, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's well, basically,
1: the... the roof here was just built in such a bad way. So I actually have a rain gutter inside the living room because it's <laughs> dripping. <laughs> but yeah, it will be replaced once uh, once I have enough money to <laughs> to do it.
0: <laughs> yeah, you'll get there. You'll get there um it's a shame how because i'm dealing with this to some degree thank goodness not in the roof but when you get to these old kind of gonzo built residences that were unpermitted you start to realize like because i have fought against innate uh regulations and restrictions on building back when i was doing natural building in different parts around the world which are really not to the benefit of the owner builder but then you get into a residence like this, where it's just really poorly built. And you're like, oh, this is why there are regulations and codes and standards for why you should build things. Because, you know, I, I remember seeing the pictures and the stories when you were ripping off the roof and like, wait, they built the, <laughs> the roofing panels into the chimney? No. And then it starts to become a structural problem. Would you take like a third out of the wall just to have to remove some of the, the yeah, the panels there? Sounded like... Yeah,
1: more, more than a third. It was almost a half. Well, it's, it's crazy. The but... walls are going to fall down, yeah. Yeah, but but, anyways, we, we want to help people who already have roofs.
0: Okay, so for those of you who have functioning roofs that keep rain and wind out of your home, go on.
1: <laughs> exactly. Apart from adding rain gutters inside your living rooms, you can also add them on the outside of your house. Um, Wait, what? So... Outside? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a crazy thing. and. Okay. Well, it's actually surprising, especially in dry areas, like here so many houses don't have any gutters uh, so on the one side that that causes issues because the the splatter that comes down can damage your house can damage your foundations but also it's such a wasted opportunity yeah um, and so by adding rain gutters you can start capturing some of that rain uh, in other cases you might already have gutters but they're just going down the drain uh, that's basically as bad as. It's not worse than having no gutters because <laughs> that water can't even infiltrate anywhere.
0: Yeah. And it's very common. I have been to so many different homes where they have rain gutters. They just go underground and then they get shot off somewhere on the property, just lower down. Now, okay, it makes sense of getting the moisture away from your foundations. That's necessary for the health of the building. But what a lost opportunity. But 100%. it is it is worth mentioning that the type of roofing material that you are harvesting from can make a big difference in the quality of water that you're getting at the downspout can you talk about that real quick
1: yeah it depends a bit on the on the different materials um and so some some roofs are just very clean so to say and and the water almost 100 percent of what falls will will go out and will be clean um so particularly especially kind of metal roofs um, I all, yeah. exactly they, they will have almost nothing then you have other other roofs, so if it's more of the tiled variety, um, they absorb a little bit of water before it starts flowing, so they can they really do, suck yeah. up. They're
0: quite porous. Water. Think of it like a terracotta pot, like that. All exactly, water. Yeah.
1: exactly. And then, and then you have others. Well, if your roof is old and you're unfortunate, you might still have an asbestos roof. Uh, also, not the best to have, even though it's not that dangerous. As long as it's intact, it's yeah, not should keep. Um, and so it depends a bit on, on what kind of roof you have. If you have a lot of stuff growing on that roof, if it's if it's really old under trees, it might be quite dirty. If you have a lot of birds always nesting on or above it, it might be full of bird poop. So you have to be kind of cautious depending on how you want to use that water and what you want to use it for. Um, and so it depends a bit in, in rainwater harvesting. If you have a clean roof and this way of, of cleaning the water, uh, then you can absolutely capture it um, as drinking water i like it's potable you you can get it to that stage if you don't really don't want to use it for that then you can capture it in a in a much um yeah dirtier state so to say
0: yeah and there's nothing wrong with integrating it into your landscape it's just when you drain it off and put it into a gutter or a drain in the road or something where it's it's a really lost opportunity there's nothing wrong with having it fill into an infiltration basin or a swale or a terrace or um, even a mulch pit, you know, there's a lot of ways to use it, even if you don't want to pay for a cistern or are not worried about having it as drinking water, just don't drain it away as fast as possible. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think yeah. one, one thing that's also important to mention, a lot of people want to get into rainwater housing, um, then get a rain barrel. But I see that as a bit of a, well, not sure if you could call it a problem. But if you have a rain barrel, like these small ones, um not sure exactly how many liters they are, but like around two hundred liters, that's um shit in conversion, something in gallons, not much
0: uh, that I would say they're about similar to like the fifty gallon drums. They like oil drums, they're roughly the yeah. Same. Yeah.
1: yeah. so so these small ones, where you think you're harvesting anything, but then again, if you look at irrigation and using that water that will last you hardly anything so generally when you start capturing water i mean capturing this much is better than nothing but it also makes sense to start capturing it in quantities that actually become useful because otherwise it's it's just adding costs to have that but that much water won't really get you anywhere Uh, and they're one of the greatest resources are ibc tanks Uh, you've probably seen those those are those um, kind of cubes often white sometimes black with a metal cage around them Uh, You can buy them new, but also used ones. Generally, they're available everywhere because all liquids are shipped internationally in them. Um, But also with them, they're they're great because they have a a thousand liter capacity, uh, which is really great. And what is highly recommended, you can get multiple and then just connect them. So that's one thing here. I'm doing my... my They don't stack
0: well, though. I don't think they can take the weight of another full one on top of them. You 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 would put them in series next to each other.
1: Yeah, I think you you can actually. I've seen I've seen stacked towers of of three by three, but then the plumbing becomes a bit weird because you need to make sure that water can still flow. So yeah, definitely putting them next to each other makes yeah. your life much easier and yeah here i'm doing that There's with potential
0: disasters too because if you are stacking them and you don't get the bottom one perfectly level and the other one starts to fill at the top you're that could be very dangerous so yeah. yeah
1: yeah you don't <laughs> really want to good... do that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah one thing that's that's really important to point out for the ibc tanks though is that um the normal ones are, are white or kind of transparent and so a lot of sunlight can get in uh, and that can cause Quite a few issues because well if you have water plus sunlight generally that always leads to algae buildup and that can get quite severe so if you want to use that water um, it's important to prevent that from happening and what you can do is that you can paint them uh, or you can cover them in a different tarp or you can build a structure around them Um, and be really careful how you do it so i tried it here with uh some standard paint, so I used some green paint because I wanted them to blend into the landscape. Painted it all, so I thought it was great, but yeah, still too much um, sunlight came in and I still had a ton of algae bloom, which is fine if you're only working with big pipes and you're just irrigating from a big pipe. As soon as you have any kind of irrigation system with the small drip nozzles, they can block super quickly. So it's something to really look out for. you can even get, you can get black IBC tanks that don't let any air, uh, any air, not air, but uh, any light in. Highly recommended to get those if you can, then you don't need to do any special preparation.
0: And the other thing about getting them used is make sure that they were originally used for something that is food safe. Because they transport all kinds of liquids, including noxious chemicals. And if you don't know what was in there previously, you definitely don't want to be storing any kind of water that will either go to your landscape or into your body. So, yeah, that's really just an issue if you're getting them used. But that's definitely worth looking at uh, if you're not sure where the source
1: is. 100%. A friend of mine did that. He got such a good deal of getting 10 IBC tanks. He was so excited because they were so cheap. And then turned out they had some really nasty chemical in them. He couldn't use any of them and had to throw them all away. So definitely watch out for that.
0: Bummer. All right. So that's capturing water. Um, you can do it on your landscape, but we'll go into more detail about what options are there as we move up in scale of properties. But let's talk about what we can use as a reuse option for water that has gone through some sort of appliance or use in the home. We're talking about gray water systems, and I'll talk a little bit too about cirars. Um, I'll explain that later. We'll start me off yeah. with gray water.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so basically, you, you distinguish water when it has been used into gray water and black water. So gray water is stuff that has just been used um, for, for washing your hands in a sink, um, sometimes in a kitchen, depends on, on what level. Um, as soon as it has some kind of um, toilet uh, entry materials in it, it turns into black water because then you have some other safety concerns um, in it uh, and you need to treat it differently. So black water is is a whole different story. Um, So today I think it makes more sense we focus just on gray water because it's much safer to use. Um, And so one of the easiest things, uh, that's also one of the first things I did here at the property, um, you can just connect your sink. So I did with my kitchen sink and get that into the garden um, where you can then use it. Because basically, Water that you can use twice um, is one water. Like if you can use it twice, you suddenly have twice the amount of water that you had before. Um, and this water generally also has some, some great nutrients in it. So plants really like it. Uh, make sure you don't use any, um, any highly chemical toxic uh, cleaning, uh, clean liquids so we have to switch to all, all natural ones. Um, and it's great. And then you need to see how sophisticated you want to build your system. So what, what I found over the years is you can build very sophisticated multi-chamber systems, but a simple mulch basin. So that's basically like a, a small pit that you dig in the soil. You fill it with, with mulch that so can be um, some chip wood, some leaves, some small branches, some tiny stuff like that. So just organic matter from plants. And you have that in a, in a pit and the water goes into that. That's often enough. Also, it doesn't really have a lot of points of potential failure. Uh, and if your house is a little bit above your garden or almost at the same level, you can you can do that. And it's such a great resource. And here, that's one of the main spots where I have plants growing without doing anything. Um, second is also for the shower, so we have our outer shower uh, that goes into another area, and there it's just going absolutely crazy. Combined with the worm compost, you know, some trees that I planted there last year are already over. and it's great. Like they just get constant. Uh, irrigation so gray water is a fantastic resource um, and yeah there's different ways of filtering it um, you already mentioned one system maybe you want to explain a bit more about that
0: yeah so there is a plethora of options for biological filtration of used water it's definitely easier to filter gray water because it's minimally contaminated and like nick said if If you're using detergents or soaps that are biodegradable, you shouldn't really have any problems with too much nutrient or anything that could kill your plants or the biology in your soil. When it comes to black water, obviously there are other considerations. It's more difficult to treat solids and the nutrient load that comes from toilets, but it's definitely feasible. In fact, I'm working with a company here in Catalonia called um, La Casa Integral. And they have specialized, one of the members of their team is a professor at the University of Girona and has taught uh, like water engineering and is going around and designing and installing these SIRAR systems, which is an acronym, uh, which is uh, S-I-R-A-R. I I don't remember what it stands for. Uh, I'd have to go look it up. I'm pretty sure it's something in Spanish anyway. But essentially what it is is a multi-chamber system where the water comes in, it is filtered, through gravel and sand, and there are appropriate plants in there that can break down the solid waste and the nutrients. Once it passes through the first chamber, it goes to a second, and I believe there's a third one in most of them. Uh, It's different for gray water systems, but they do treat black water this way as a replacement for traditional septic systems. They're going to be installing two of them at a client's that I'm working with. I've helped them to come up with the overview of the larger scale water retention landscape that they want and they've hired other people to put in particular installations and these sedars are are one of them so they're eventually going to be changing over the conventional septic system for the house that's already there but they're building one in already for a new house that they're building at the bottom of their Uh, of their residents. So there's going to be two of them integrated, and the water that comes out of those systems is immediately going to be integrated into slightly off-contour terraces that help to accumulate it in ponds. So that's a good option. There are others as well. Oh, you've got the acronym, Sistema Integral de Reciclaje de Aguas Residuales. So Integral System of Recycling Residual Water or Wastewater. Nice. Thanks for that, Nick. (laughs) I'll call on you for tech support more often. Um, of
1: course, that's what I'm here for.
0: Yeah, you're so much better with tech than I am. Uh, there are more options. I, I've seen and read about others. Most of them have similar elements, but there are even ones that are done at a community scale that have multiple chambers of planted out water tanks, most of which integrate some kind of aeration system. When you agitate the water and you add air, it forces bacteria in there and it breaks down solids and other nutrients down much, much faster. And it's also healthy for the plants. And you can even eventually get potable water out of that with these advanced filtration techniques that require no chemicals. So it's something to look into if you've got the budget for it. If you have a traditional septic system, it's something that you're looking to do for for extra filtration of your water. But it's also not totally necessary, especially if you're separating for gray and black water. Gray is so much easier to deal with. The main thing that I know to be careful about with gray water for safety is that you should never store it for any period of time. So even though it's not really contaminated, there's enough nutrient load in there that it can start to putrefy if you're holding it in tanks for any period of time. It's best to get that out into the landscape and into the soil where the natural microbiology can properly process that and uh, roots of plants can uptake it. So yeah, just don't store it and you should be good. It's really otherwise there's there's no significant risks. All right, what else for small property uh mulching pots? You want to talk about those, Nick?
1: Um yeah, absolutely. So w- one of the main things specifically in in drier areas or areas with the, with the dry area is for every plant that you put in the ground, like think what will happen when it rains and what will happen when water hits the ground. And Quite often, um, you you see that all around the landscape, specifically when there's like municipal plantings and all that, that all the trees and everything is planted on nice little mounds, always making sure that no water can get to it, always making sure that all the water can get away from those plants as quickly as possible so that you have to constantly irrigate them in summer. Um, and that is absolutely not smart uh, if you live in dry areas and you can make your life so much easier by just putting things below surface. Um, so here and, and also in other areas like anytime I'm planting anything, I always dig a much bigger pit first. So it, it doesn't have to be super deep. you just have to make sure that when it rains that water will go into that pit and not out of it. Um, and then inside that hole I'm, I'm digging a little bit more where I'm putting my plants so that way you create kind of a natural little pool. Um, you can then plant into it and also you can then fill it up with more mulch or compost um, if you want to, to add an additional layer. And that has made life so much easier. It has made irrigation needs so much lower. Uh, it's incredible. So I'm, I'm doing that in some parts here where, where I don't need to irrigate at all. And yeah, the systems are just surviving for sometimes for for two months or longer without getting a single drop of water because when it rains, all the water accumulates. And the great thing is that you can also connect these. So if you have small little basins um, throughout your property, like if it rains heavily, you can also direct your, your roof into it. It's also one thing I'm doing here. And then when one is full, it overflows into the next. And that way you can build a little chain of pools uh, that fill up over time. And that is such a relief in in having to to water and and having to having to plant. And yeah. then you can also you know connect them through longer channels so you can have um, channels either on level or or slightly sloped that way you can get water from one part of the property to the next. Um, and that even works in a small garden. So yeah. it's it's useful. Like just always as, as we've said in previous episodes, go out when it rains, look what happens and then fix your fix your drains, and then from there, continue, okay, how can you get water to plants to, to infiltrate there? How, how do you experience that? Or what are you working with on that side?
0: Yeah, I really love those. Uh, they work on a small scale, like you said. One thing that I do see, however, is that people make those depressions in the landscape for the size of the plant when they plant them. <laughs> and I would say make those depressions the size of the full-grown plant at the size you expect it to get to uh, at full maturity. Can't tell you how many times I've seen like, I don't know, maybe a foot or 30 or 40 centimeters diameter larger than the trunk of a tree. That's not where the roots of that tree are. (laughs) In fact, oftentimes the roots extend quite a bit further out than the crown of the tree, which is like the shade that it would cast if the sun was immediately above. The roots do not necessarily look like a perfect reflection of what is above ground. No that they can extend much, much further. And they can extend in shapes and patterns that are very distinct from the above ground feature. And also if you're on a significant slope, simply putting a depression into the earth might not be quite as appropriate as constructing what they call media lunas uh, or half moons. So building up a berm on the down slope that looks like a crescent and making sure that the points of that crescent on the uphill part are actually the lowest points of the crescent. Because if you make the lowest point being the, the bulge or the berm on the downhill side, that's where it's going to fail whenever it overfills, and it'll blast that out and you'll lose all your water at once rather than having it seep slowly out of the back, where just like Nick said, you can connect that in with others and have a whole chain so that water has to take the longest route possible before it gets out uh and then maybe just one
1: thing covering those um, with
0: mulch and organic material too to prevent evaporation making sure that there's more to to soak it up but yeah go ahead
1: yeah it's it's not just for trees so um i'm also doing that for vegetables and other things so basically you can put your whole um your whole garden beds um i mean everyone always talks about raised beds but you can also do the reverse which is very good in in drier areas so a sunken bed so that way just everything is a little bit below surface. Um, you need to be a bit careful with those. If, in the case of getting heavy rains, you also don't want your plants to completely drown in them. So if you, if you have very heavy clay soils, make sure that the water doesn't stay in them too long or make sure they have an outflow um, so you don't drown your plants either. Uh, but that's something that's also really great that you can do. Um, and then as you, as you said before, when you have sunken beds and you fill them with mulch or organic material, over time, they might go back to the, to the surface layer if you constantly add compost to them. And then you basically just have a nice little sponge full of fertility um, that you wouldn't have otherwise.
0: Yeah, this is exactly one of the recommendations that I just did for that client. They have these raised beds in an area that's on a bit of a slope. And it is appropriate for some of the things that they planted that don't like to have their roots wet but for most of your annual vegetables that aren't putting down deep tap roots anyway, having more of a depression in, in dry land areas is often more appropriate than building a berm up above. And there's one other technique that we did in Guatemala. This was partly to get rid of some of the large rocks that we had in our soil, but was really good for deeper level decompaction, which is double dug beds. So you dig down, like you would to prepare a normal bed this might be you know six inches was that like 20 centimeters and then dig down that same depth one more time and at this point you're really getting to where some of the larger root systems of your smaller annuals are going to penetrate down to and this will remain hydrated for longer if you're able to decompact it if it's able to absorb water. So double digging your beds, especially if you're in compacted soil like heavy clay or if you've got big stones and such, it will definitely improve uh, well hydration of the soil but also the ability for those roots to get down and make use of it so that you don't have to sow regularly water from the surface. And you know, all of this stuff is relevant at the larger scale. So let's take a jump up now to medium scale. Let's talk about maybe things that are around one acre, maybe half a hectare to one hectare, that kind of a scale. All right, we're gonna take a pause there for this session and continue on next week's episode where we go into more detail about medium to large scale, all the way up to regional water restoration options. And in the meantime, you can find all of the resources and the ways of getting in touch with us directly through the show notes for this episode on the website at regenerativeskills.com. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet. And we're here to help you find your path. So, as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future and I'll be right by your side along the way.